Computing Broadcast, a fascinating round in three, two, one. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. I've got a great show for you this week. And actually, this is going to kick off a series of shows on the iconic, albeit little-known car, the DeLorean. And it, my guess is, if you're listening to this and the, the word DeLorean rings true or, or rings any bells, it's because you probably saw Back to the Future. This is the car that what the time machine is made out of in Back to the Future. It's a DeLorean. And it's actually kind of funny because DeLorean was out of business by the time the movie came out. Uh, and its legacy, in some ways, lives on on that screen. The movie was incredibly popular. That's where people know it from. But in actuality, it was a car company that had quite an interesting history You know that, that most people don't know about. Most people don't even realize the cars still exist. And I'm guessing most people don't know that the car company is still alive and kicking. Uh, which is very odd. A very strange turn of events. You're going to learn all about this, including uh, the man who was the center of this, John Z. DeLorean. It's quite a wild ride. And lucky enough, I have a guy on the show who knows the inside and out. He was an insider, John Z.'s right-hand man during all of this, Barry Wills. And so he's going to sit down. just wrote a book called John Z, The DeLorean, and Me, which is an extremely interesting and objective account of what went on during these uh, this very these pivotal years in the late 70s and early 80s. Uh, so let's just get right into this. Barry, I want to thank you so much for being on the show today. Now, you're in, you're in uh, are you in Northern Ireland still, or are you in... No, uh, no, 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 no. I haven't lived back? in Northern Ireland since 1983. Okay. No, I, I, uh, I'm a, an Englishman. Uh-huh. I was the, the first Englishman to be recruited by John DeLorean, uh-huh. um, and I was the first man to be recruited from the uh, auto industry outside of America uh, by John DeLorean. Wow, um, that's a lot of firsts. And you were and you were the longest serving executive, right? I, I was the longest serving, and I was the last man out, having uh, handed the uh, keys to the plant over to the auctioneers. Really. Did you literally yeah. hand it to? I mean, did you literally hand the yes, keys? Yes, literally, literally. <laughs> <laughs> On behalf of the receivers, but they did allow me to to go through that almost ceremonial gesture of sure. handing the keys over to the auctioneers. Yeah, right. Wow. I mean, that's it's kind of amazing because you know what what's so cool about this story is that I, I've obviously been fascinated with the DeLorean. Um, as most people have, you know, I mean, also I'm an, I'm an American, so I, you know, I knew about the DeLorean a little bit. It's, you know, I was pretty young at the time, uh, if even born when most of the stuff was going on. But what, what's, what's incredible about it is if, you know, if it wasn't for the movie back to the future, I would never have heard of a DeLorean. And I think, you know, I think the story, there's so many moving parts to the DeLorean story. Um, there's John DeLorean, there's the car itself, um, there's the manufacturing of it, you know, all the stuff I learned from your incredible book about, um, like, how it was actually put together. 
it, it, there's so much to get into, but but I think we really have to start with the entire reason that the legend even you know continues on, and that's Back to the Future. Oh, yeah, it's got to, it's got to be. I mean, I I get a bit annoyed at times with the the, the purists uh-huh. of the DeLorean fraternity who get upset when uh, Back to the Future or you know um, Marty McFly. Uh, right. And the rest of it is mentioned, <laughs> yeah. and I have to keep reminding them that if it wasn't for those three movies, right. then um, the DeLorean would be probably just slightly more well known, better known than the Brooklyn. Right. Yeah. And that brings them down to earth. Then yeah. it's a it's a great point. I remember because I've watched a bunch of documentaries. Which was you know quick side note. I was watching them. And I was waiting for you to appear because I know how prominently you play in the story. And there are a couple, uh, were, like I think in the Pennebrook one, you show up once or twice. I was like, oh, there's Barry. There he is. Um, <laughs> but there's some where, where you don't appear at all. And I thought that was kind of shocking. But then I realized the people that they got. Um, I think the BBC one, I watched that last night. You don't appear in that at all, which is well, can I tell you? Can I tell you why? Yeah. Um, I... Uh, when I finished in, in 83, uh, February of 83, um, it was a very, very hard experience towards the end because um, I really had the responsibility for progressively laying off over 2,000 people. Wow. Uh, closing down a plant, uh, overseeing a, workforce, a small workforce who labeled up dutifully every piece of equipment from the paint shop through to individual screwdrivers and uh, spanners right uh, ready for an auction and quite frankly by the time i'd finished i really did not want to share um much of my experience with delorean uh furthermore um the book by ivan fallon and james schroeds came out it was published uh, about a year or so later and I was mortally offended by that book which I thought was written to an agenda uh, not a flattering agenda and uh, what was the I, name of the book what was the title it was I think it's just called DeLorean mm. uh, I, I think it goes under two titles one in one in the UK and one in America but it's it was written by uh, Two journalists that worked for the Daily Telegraph in um, the UK. Um, and as a result, um, that kicked off a whole wave in the UK of anti-DeLorean uh, propaganda almost. So I declined the opportunity. I was approached time and time again to participate in these various um, so-called documentaries. Um, but I, I declined them all. I, I declined every one. Um, I, I felt I'd had enough, and I was getting on with my rebuilding my career anyway. So sure. uh, got other things to do. Well, that makes sense. So, so this is a pretty this is a pretty rare treat that you're on on this show here. This this isn't your oh. out of retirement show, is it? Uh, oh, oh no 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 well, no! Because I'm promoting my books now, no. so I'm, I'm <laughs> no, ready to no. anyone. I know. I'm just kidding. Right? Anyone? <laughs> anyone. <laughs> Don't take that wrong. Don't take that the wrong way. No. You're not anyone. You're no, 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 of course, of course. No, I, I, I feel special change. there for a second, Barry. <laughs> no, I did change my mind. I can't remember. Someone approached me to participate in in one of these things, and I, I, there'd been a long gap, and um, 
it was well before I started to think about writing uh, anything, but um, I asked him, I think it was somebody I knew or I'd met before, and I asked him specifically if, there was going to, if this was going to be yet another just knocking of the project, the man, the car, and everything else. And uh, I, I was assured that this one would be fair. Uh, I don't expect them to be uncritical, of course, but I just want f fairness. And he promised me that this one would be fair, so I agreed to participate. And since then, it's very rare for me to turn down an opportunity. Well, well, this is a great place to shamelessly plug your book. What's the title? <laughs> um, the book is called John Z, The DeLorean and Me. Um, and it covers, really, my time as the longest-serving employee, the last man out, and, and the first, almost the first man in, certainly the... The first man in once the project went to Northern Ireland. Sure, I mean, and and it's you know it it's it doesn't read quite like a history book, but it does t it, it tells you all the ins and outs. I mean, things that I didn't even know existed, uh, you know, just in the nuts and bolts of putting a car together, which is its own fascinating topic. I mean, I think people kind of get caught up a in Back to the Future or b in in the DeLorean in in his story, John DeLorean. Yeah. And, and, and just the and kind of the surface vanity of the car, the gullwing doors, the stainless steel, all that stuff. But putting the car together is actually a fascinating story. But let, let's get back to the, this Marty McFly thing. So the point I was making was that there was one guy in this documentary who, like you said, you know, someone brings it up. And he was like so upset about that, the, you know, he's like, so many people put blood and tears into this car, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, no, I get all that. But to your point... No one would remember the car. It would be just like my grandmother had an AMC Gremlin, right? If I yep. tell people she had an AMC Gremlin, they don't know what an, a Gremlin is. They don't know what a Pacer is. They don't know what a Rambler was. A Rambler was a very popular car that sold yep. way more than the DeLorean. No one knows yep. what they are. Everyone knows a DeLorean. Um, and it, it's it's funny because just, just to talk about Back in the Future just for a second because it, it is, it, it's amazing how there are so many interesting things in that movie that kind of tie into what we're talking about. But do you know why they picked that car? Because that movie came out years after DeLorean shuttered, after you had literally handed over the keys to, to the auctioneer. Well, um, only two years, I think. Right. Uh, but you guys had all shuttered it, though. I mean, it had been packed Oh, yes. Away. We, yeah. we closed down. I, I, I Basically, we locked up in uh, February of 1983. And I think the movie was released in '85. Right, but, but I mean, you guys went through bankruptcy. I mean, there was a whole process, and the movie came out well after the process was oh, complete, yeah. you know? And, and that was just... And the reason why I say that is because that particular movie is kind of in the annals of history. Like, like when, I, when I went to film school, like, you study that movie because it's one of the first real movies that uses product placement. You'll see Mountain Dew everywhere. Yes. You'll see Coca-Cola. I mean, it's Robert Zemeckis. Robert Zemeckis has done more for the DeLorean than, than John DeLorean himself probably. But also, they, they chose their product placement very carefully. And DeLorean was not around to give them any money. I actually thought that it was a publicity stunt, knowing what I know about the movie, knowing what I know um, about Robert Zemeckis and John DeLorean. I, I thought it was a paid promotion. Yeah. Um, and and I, to find out that it wasn't actually shocked me. So I was just curious if you knew how that got into the movie, or was it just a random thing? Only I only know what I've read, um, which is that apparently, you know, they were planning at one time to, to, for the time machine to be a, a refrigerator, but then 
uh, something <laughs> realised what a what a terrible thing it would be if some children decided to, some child decided to lock himself in the refrigerator that that you know in your country full of litigation that could be quite sure, serious sure, um, sure. and they decided <laughs> that um, a car would be appropriate and I think I, I suspect that the Goldwing doors and the and the stainless steel body really uh, clinched what car right. and of course there is a story I've read that. Um, when the movie uh, started to get a little bit of publicity during its making, that Ford um, threw thousands of dollars at them in an attempt to uh, encourage them to switch it to a Mustang, and, the, and huh. it was declined. The opportunity was declined. Now the odd thing is that, that is so I, weird. That makes it even weirder, Barry. <laughs> yeah. No, I've no idea. I mean, it, <laughs> in fact, when the when the film was released in. Um, in England, I was pretty busy at the time, um, and my two daughters, who were then in their early teens, had heard about this time travel film because Doctor Who was the big thing over here then. Right, the yeah, yeah. Doctor Who, and anything to do with time travel was a, was an exciting thing. So I was talked into taking them to the cinema to see this movie called Back to the Future. I hadn't got the faintest idea what it was all about, and, right. and honestly, no one was more surprised than me when I saw DeLorean <laughs> come out of the back of that truck. Right, yeah, yeah. That is quite exciting. And of course, the, at the end of the movie, my one, uh, the major thought going through my mind was, why on earth couldn't they have made that movie three years earlier? I mean, sales would have been through the roof. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it could have changed everything. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's people who clamor over those cars right now, 30 years after the movie came out. I mean, it would have changed yeah. everything for you guys. I mean, it would have changed everything. Um, you know, it, 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 I mean, that makes this whole mystery actually kind of weird, uh, stranger, because like, uh, I thought they were all about getting these product placement things, and if Ford threw money at them and they decided to go with a defunct car, that's so bizarre. I mean, because, but in the movie, then they say, if you're going to, you know, they kind of ask the same question, and they're going to say, if you're going to build a car, build it with some style. Um, you know, what else is funny is I also learned that, like, the car itself wasn't, it was supposed to be an ethical sports car, but it wasn't that powerful of a sports car, which is funny because in the movie, you know, the famous line while, while Marty's getting chased by the Libyans is, let me see if you bastards can do 90. And he, like, you know, pulls the, the thing back and then it goes flying forward. And you're like, oh, this is a really cool car. Um, but it wasn't really that fast. <laughs> well, no, but no, no. It, it, to be honest, yeah. Daniel, you're too young. Dan, you're too young. I am. Uh, no car at that time was fast. Hmm. Because, Not even the know, muscle cars. You, you, no, because you Americans. Yeah, what well, we do. Uh, well, you, you you were you were right. You were saving the world before anybody else was. <laughs> you were the guy yeah. that brought in emission control. Yeah. First, right? Yeah. And. Uh, the only problem with that was that uh, the early emission control equipment produced by Delco and uh, uh, Bosch and people like that um, was in its infancy. And in every case, it stifled the performance of an engine. To, to, you'd got this fight all the time between performance and emission control. And it was a trade-off. And Lotus had a very, very difficult time with the uh, f uh, French uh, PRV, Peugeot Renault Volvo engine, um, which was sold in the States, but only, only in very small volumes by Volvo. Peugeot and Renault uh, were not in the USA. And um, 
the, the, you'll find the Volvo, the performance of the Volvo was really not, well, it wasn't better because it was a heavier car. Um, so it's by today's standards that we consider the DeLorean to be um, underpowered, not by the standards of 1980. Okay, all right, that's fair. I seem to have I seem to have hit a sensitive nerve. I apologize. I, no, 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 not at all. No, I just it's all part of my, um, my 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 role in life these days of setting the record straight. No, that's fair. Okay, no, that's fair, and it's that's actually great context. So, because uh, I think it, I mean, as I was watching some documentaries, and it was kind of getting the engine was getting kind of blasted, and I was like, I thought this was a sports car because that was kind of the purpose. Um, but but one last thing on the movie, then we'll move on. You mentioned the speedometer. Um, I believe in your book you talk about your role in um, that, in basically like in that speedometer, because obviously 88 miles per hour, spoiler alert here on the movie, uh, is very important. But you had a role in that which which involves speed. So tell me about that. Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's, a, it's my only ever attempt at design. Um, <laughs> well, Charles Bennington. <laughs> Charles Bennington, who was the first um, managing director of um, uh, DeLorean Motor Cars Limited in Northern Ireland, an American um, who put so much effort into getting the car into production. Uh, a, a absolutely amazing man, uh, the late Charles Bennington now, unfortunately. Um, he uh, decided that he... Uh, I'll just step back. One of the few components that we inherited on the car by the time it came to Northern Ireland was the instrument cluster which is being developed by a division of General Motors called, strangely enough, AC Spark Plug. Uh, you know, they were the original spark plug manufacturer, but they diversified into all sorts of things, including uh, speedometers and the like. And um, uh, Charles uh, got very, very heavily involved with uh, Giugiaro in the uh, freshening of the car that came about as soon as the program got sufficient funds uh, to the point where he started to look at some of the detail and he and Giugiaro thought that the instruments on the on the vehicle uh, the speedometer in particular was too fussy there were too many numbers every five miles an hour on the speedometer there was a number yeah from 60 to 65 so, and it was just too full of numbers so Charles uh, said, look, we've got to change this uh, in a hurry. You know, we've got to get uh, AC spark plug to, to change it quickly. I said, well, Charles, um, you know, Lotus are really only just getting off the ground. He said, just get on with it and do it. So I got hold of a drawing and I got, uh, do you, you're familiar with Tipex? You call it something else. Tipex. The white stuff that typists used to use. Oh, I don't, I don't, that's way before my time. Uh <laughs> Oh, typist. Ask your grandpa. Ask your grandpa <laughs> Great grandpa. Yeah, yeah, I call get it, it. Call it something else. It's like, yeah, it's like, like a correction paper? fluid. Oh, oh white, white out. White out. Yeah, we yeah. call it Tipex over here. Okay. And because um, you get it in a little brush, like a little, you know, sort of brush yeah. that a girl would use for her, for her eyelashes, I guess. Sure. Oh, yeah, but it's like mascara, except it's white. Right. So I took this drawing <laughs> of, the, um, of the DeLorean speedometer and I just whited out the numbers. Uh -huh. uh, every fifth, every five mile an hour number. Or was it? The, no, the other way around. Every number with a zero at the end of it. I just whited it out, huh. gave it to G General Motors and said, there you are, get on with it, make the changes. Right. 
That was amazing. That was so simple. That is like what engineering should be all about. I think you missed yes. your calling. That's great. Yeah. It lasts to this day. The other joke is that, of course, the top, the top um, speed on the speedometer was 85 miles an hour. Oh, right. <laughs> and when they made the movie, they had to fit um, a European version of the speedometer to the car. Huh. Uh, the difference being that was in America, you had this strange idea uh-huh. that if you, uh, by law, forced car manufacturers to uh, maximize the speed on the speedometer of 85 miles an hour, people would not exceed it, and therefore fuel economy would be better. Right, in that Europe. is true. Yeah, yeah, in that's Europe, true. We, we, we couldn't give a damn, frankly, my dear. You know, <laughs> so we just got on with it. So uh, <laughs> that's yeah. that's exactly right. Well, yeah. and I mean, and the car goes up to eighty-eight. That's the magic number, and it, it was like off number. the. That's like blown yeah. off the charts. Uh, uh, which they, is they well, have to have a European speedometer to actually show that you could get up to eighty-eight. Right. Well, they have, they do have a digital one on the dashboard. But what's interesting about that is earlier in the movie. Um, Marty McFly turns up his, I think he turns up his uh, guitar to 11 before he blows out the speakers. So that would make sense. He also blows out the car before he goes through time. Uh, I think I've just discovered something very important about movies. Um, all right, so let's let's talk. So we so we, we know why this is in the zeitgeist. People are bananas about these movies. Although it is, it's really interesting. One last point, I promise. It is funny. People rarely, I think people rarely know what an actual DeLorean looks like because everyone is so used to seeing the time machine and everyone who has a DeLorean like pimps it out into a time machine. Uh, it was kind of cool to see the, you know, the original DeLorean over and over in these documentaries, which is kind of well, fascinating. Yeah, you're right. In fact, um, just a little side story for a moment. I, I visited Northern Ireland a, a few years ago. I was helping to arrange a, organize a, uh, reunion event for former employees of DeLorean in Northern Ireland. And uh, I went into the small town of Dunmurray, which is, you know, where the plant was. And um, you're quite a rarity as an Englishman in Northern Ireland. So the, the, the young girl serving me in the shop, and she asked me what I was here for, and I told her. And she said, DeLorean? I said, yeah, you know it. It's a car. Yeah. She said, a car? I said, yeah, you've seen Back to the Future, haven't you? <laughs> and she said, yeah. I said, well, you know the car in there? Don't you realize that there was a factory about a mile and a half from where we're standing <laughs> that made 9,000 of them? Right. Oh, she said, I thought they just made it for the movie. <laughs> That is, but that that's ridiculous. Number one, but that's not absolute. It's not unreasonable because they, they're not no. on the road. No, and she was about twenty-one or two. I well, guess. Well, there you go. Yeah, yeah. kids yeah. these days. I mean, it's yes. it's, it's fascinating um, because the the whole story is 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 crazy. Now let's talk about John Delorean really quickly. I'm, I'll give you. I know you're not a John Delorean historian, although that'd be a great title. Um, but but I'll just quickly go through some of his bona fides. He was the youngest division head in General Motors history. He was on. He, he kind of worked on the on the Pontiac GTO, which won the Motor Trend Car of the Year in 1968. Just thought I would mention. Uh, wasn't the first muscle car, but kind of set off the mus- muscle car trend in the 60s and the 70s. Uh, he he, or at least he gets credit for that. He decided to build his own car, which I think that that process started in 73 or 75 
um, and didn't, re- and which the car wasn't even built until 81. So it was a very long process to build this car, but he wanted to build an ethical, um, safe sports car. And that's kind of where the DeLorean comes in. Now, what I didn't know, like going into this, what I thought is that John DeLorean had this vision and then made his car. And what I learned from your book, especially, is that that's not exactly how things played out. He had the idea for an ethical sports car, which, which he, I also didn't know this, he had a deal with Allstate Insurance to build a safety car, and then that car became the DMC-12. So they're, they're, like, the whole genesis of the car is very interesting. But so, so he had this idea. He wanted a car that wouldn't rust. I think he gave warranties on the, wanted to do warranties on the stainless steel panels um, for 25 years or something. Uh, had a plastic gas tank, uh, you know, just, to, just had this vision. But he wasn't, he didn't, he didn't design the car. He didn't build the car. He, you know, it was, he didn't engineer the car. And that was the most surprising element, I think, for me. Um, so tell me a little bit about how this car kind of went from concept into like, well, in, let's say this, how, how it went from thought into concept, mm. <laughs> well, pre-building. I think it's quite simple, really. Um, looking back at John now from the guy I first met in September of 78, um, when, you know, he's probably one of the most, really one of the most impressive people I've ever met in my life and I, I've met a few, quite a lot of very senior uh, people in the auto industry over my years um, I progressively formed the opinion that John was a great ideas man but he was not the greatest of implementers he knew his strengths, his, his strengths were to find an idea and uh, encourage it uh, and then hand it over to others to make it happen. Hence, you know, Giugiaro did the design of the car, the styling of the car in Italy. Mm-hmm. One uh, of the greatest he, stylists at the time. I mean, he, he really oh, came up with a great design, and he was well-known, yeah. the top, top yeah. designer. Oh, yeah, he was the, he was the top man, and, and has been, you know, he's only retired a, a couple of years now. Uh, I saw him three years ago. I had lunch with him three years ago in Turin. Lovely man. I'm still very, very fond of the of the car. Um, uh, so, Giugiaro designed it for him. Then, of course, as soon as he got the money to actually implement it, um, he he he'd already basically done a deal in 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 um, in principle with Colin Chapman of Lotus to 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 engineer the car. Uh, we found that out very, very early on, almost by accident. And I, I think I've mentioned in my book that I was with Bill Collins, or I, I stumbled across Bill Collins, uh, John's number two, an original chief engineer, at Lotus in November of uh, uh, of '78, um, just receiving the, a copy of the agreement with Lotus across the fax machine. That's when Bill realized that they hadn't got a job. <laughs> so this is an interesting part of the story. So I don't mean to interrupt you, but I want to pause. I want to say something really quickly because this is important for people listening. Is that you know th- th- 
there were there was almost very little money to build this car, and John had to kind of finagle his way into building this car for a very low price. And one of the ways was to find companies and places that needed money where he could get a good deal. And Lotus uh, was one of those places that was in need of money, wanted this ongoing car company, and gave him a good deal. Whether or not it was a particularly good fit, literally or figuratively, is another thing. But But that was why they went with Lotus to design the chassis, right? Well, it was more than chassis. I mean, Lotus engineered the complete car, uh, having inherited the uh, design from Giugiaro. We we oversaw that work. In fact, one of my one of my roles, apart from being the director of purchasing and supply, was to um, lead the progress meetings that met each week to monitor Lotus's progress on. Uh, the development of the car, make sure it was done on time. The, the great danger was because Lotus was so much in need of money, and it was a very lucrative contract for them. In fact, um, it really, I, I suspect, uh, Lotus may well have gone under had it not been for the DeLorean contract. Um, the danger was that if they, if we didn't progress them to get the job done, they'd carry on doing it forever. Mm-hmm. Right. Get the, <laughs> Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's... <laughs> so there was a big, there's a major discipline involved in uh, right. making sure that the design and development of the vehicle, sorry, the development and uh, engineering development and test of the vehicle was completed uh, to a schedule that made sense. We we ran four months late as it happened. Uh, we had we had I think, again I mentioned the book. We had two programs. John had sold the government um, for the funding. Uh, the the promise that the, the car could be done in 18 months. Well, quite frankly, everybody that joined from the industry knew knew that that was impossible. So we had two programs. We had an 18 month program that we talked to the government about, and we got a 24 month program that we got internally that we thought was realistic, and that then slipped to 28 months. But it was still a it was still a minor miracle to get a car from nothing to um, the market in the most difficult market of, in the world because of the fact that America had got all these stringent emission controls, unlike the rest of the world, um, within 28 months. And which is, I think you say in your book, it's a world record that still stands, concept to car in, in 28 months, which I think typically takes five years in the auto industry, or at least it did at the time, yeah. right? Yeah. Well, and I, I think I said somewhere, and it might have been one of the documentaries that I appeared in, that the reason it will never be beaten is that nobody will be as crazy as us to even try to do it. <laughs> right, yeah. No, that's true. I mean, well, there's no reason to now. I mean, there aren't really... I mean, Tesla's like the... Tesla's probably the latest startup, um, but it's significantly more successful, and then they and they were, you know, doing... They had a whole different business plan, so I, I don't think that even, you know... It's just th- those conditions, it'll never exist again, which no, is, I mean, is kind of cool. Yeah, Elon Musk started with an awful lot of his own money out of right. PayPal, didn't he? So yeah, yeah, yeah. Very different, really, to uh, to John's position. Yeah. No, absolutely. Um, and, and you mentioned you mentioned the, the, you know the Northern Ireland part, and it, the car ended up being in Northern Ireland, and it ended up being funded by the by the government in a way, which I, this was kind of like a confusing part for me because I was watching in in 
in some of the documentaries, they were talking about how, you know, again, like with Lotus, he found people who needed money. Northern Ireland was essentially because of the the, the troubles that were happening there in the 70s and 80s, of, you know, where most of the 70s, because that's when you guys went in there, um, was, you know, from the IRA, the, this idea to unite um, Ireland. And this was still going on when I visited Ireland in, in 2000. You know, we weren't supposed to go up to Belfast or you did during only during certain times of the year or whatever. So this was, you know, it's a very volatile area. If anyone who knows history is aware of that, you know, and it was ravaged by unemployment. And, and John, yeah. you know, had, had looked at, I think he looked at England first and then, and then Puerto Rico and then Northern Ireland gave him the best deal, which is part of the UK. How how does that I, I guess how does that work? How do you how does an American car company convince a government to essentially take on the financial burden of building this unproven dream car? I mean, to me, that's like one of the modern miracles of the story. Well, I guess you've not met John. I have not. <laughs> John, Would that explain John, it? <laughs> John is the old time charmer. Yeah. You know, John uh, is was. Uh, a very convincing man. I mean, in all seriousness, um, when I first, not when I first met John, but I went, after I joined, I went to the US in January of 79 uh, to firstly familiarize myself with the Californian end where Dick Brown, C.R. Brown, who was the, in charge of sales and marketing, uh, had his small group. Uh, but on the way back, I, I was asked by John to go to New York and I spent the longest period of time one-to-one -one with John that I probably spent throughout the whole program. And it was during that that I realized that he was a man who really understood the industry he worked in. So, you know, you, uh, John would, would have been very, very convincing to any government, whether it be Puerto Rico or Northern Ireland. Um, the, the, the thing about Northern Ireland was that um, it was less the less the troubles it's themselves that have been going on since the mid sixties, but were historical anyway. They'd been they'd been um, uh, they'd erupted again in the sixties, um, uh, having been pretty well uh, dormant since the formation of the. Republic of Ireland in the in the forties, um, but the real thing that uh, was important from the British government's point of view was unemployment, and the the bad thing about employment in Northern Ireland, particularly in the Belfast area, was that the major employers. Uh, which were a company called Harlan and Wolf that was shipbuilders, most famous for building the Titanic, and um, Short Brothers, who were an aircraft manufacturer, uh, had very large workforces in the in the you know, two or three thousand mark each of them, but they were almost entirely Protestant loyalist workforces. So the major part of the unemployment in Northern Ireland fell to the uh, Republican Catholic community, uh, and that was the basis, really, of the problem. It's less about wanting to bring Northern Ireland into the Republic of Ireland, which, of course, was a factor. 
It was more about the unfairness of the uh, major uh, weight of unemployment resting on the Republican um, uh, Roman Catholic shoulders. So our role, uh, although it was never spoken, it was, it was certainly not part of the, the contract, but we felt it was a sensible policy to ensure that we had a 50-50 workforce. And that's what we set out to do, and that's what we achieved. And one of the one of the proudest things that I feel about the project is that once those people were inside the plant, and by the way, we had a, a, a pretty large female employment ratio as well, way ahead of our uh, of our of our time in that respect. Um, once these people were working side by side, it was as if there was nothing going on outside the plant that they should concern themselves with. We, we had strict rules. There were to be no, no posters, no banners. The, the, the most amazing thing is if you went into a Short Brothers plant or a Harlan and Wolf facility at that time, the insides of the factory walls would be covered in banners of King William of Orange and all this stuff, you know? Mm, well, right, right, there right, wasn't yeah. going to be anything like that in the DeLorean plant. There was nothing. Bennington had a very strict rule about colours. We were grey and yellow. You couldn't get far in, further removed from from orange or, <laughs> or green, you know? Right, yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know, it, it was as simple as that. And uh, all the walls were grey. The only uh, yellow were the lines on the factory floor that divided up the manufacturing areas. Everything else was in right. shades of grey, 50 shades of grey. <laughs> right even the car yeah um you, you know it's it's i mean it is kind of amazing because it did bring a lot of people together who wouldn't normally be together uh and i think you know in in kind of you know like in a literary way almost like it, it was this this thing this plant that existed but it really brought together people of all different backgrounds that were that were fighting outside the plant but were existing harmoniously within the plant just working you know just trying to make a living uh you know all kind of having the same problems i won't use the word troubles but had the same problems and you know th that's exactly how you bring people together you on the common ground every, people are just people uh but th it was very important for that particular part of the world and i mean that was a great thing that the factory did can i, can I just pick can i just pick up another point dan before you move on um it even it even um it's an interesting factor too that the operational directors of the company were also from from different backgrounds and different countries. We'd got Canadians, we'd got Americans, we'd got a Greek, we'd got English, we'd got an Irishman. You know, <laughs> there was a whole mix, and of course American. Uh, we got a whole mix of um, people from different backgrounds, different parts of the global car industry. George Broomfield, our American Detroit um, manufacturing director, had run plants in Argentina and Brazil for GM. You know, we all, we all came from very, very different backgrounds, but we, we merged in and it all worked. Yeah, I mean, and I think that that's really incredible because that's kind of, you know, I think kind of one of the lasting impressions locally, 
I think is that particular aspect. And maybe maybe why so many people don't like the Back to the Future reference because that is so trivial and had nothing to really do with the company or the people. Uh, and this is a more like a lasting impression of the good that it did as a factory and as a company. Mm. It's also the the tragedy of the ending because you know had the company been able to continue, um, I honestly believe uh, that the whole the employment would have grown to the point, and the we'd have been able to continue the work we'd started to build up a a local supplier base, get more and more companies from elsewhere in the world to come into Northern Ireland to help supply manufacture and supply components, that the whole employment situation would have changed in Northern Ireland to the point that the, the whole peace process could have been brought forward a decade or more. Hmm. Wow. I mean, that's, that's, I mean, that's incredible. You know, I mean, it, it's, I mean, it's it's unfortunate the way things ended, obviously with bankruptcy. But I mean, that that would have been amazing. I think that that I think it's those types of things that people hang on to, that are its lasting impression. Um, but but I want to talk about the factory real quickly because not only did it have this harmonious kind of vibe, but it was also extraordinarily modern. You know, it was pollution free. There were conveyor belts. You know, it was built from scratch. But it was, you know, kind of this very at the time very modern factory. And I think that's I think that's why I like this story so much is there's so many like really unique, cool things, very innovative things. That was one, um, you know, the factories is very modern plant, but also with the car itself. And I think this is why people like the car so much is it's made out of stainless steel. Like who makes a stainless steel car? The gullwing doors are very interesting. And I remember reading somewhere is probably in your book, but that the key part to the DeLorean, you know, it was, they were like, you could change all kinds of things, but you can't change the going doors and you can't change uh, the stainless steel because those are the things that make it unique. And that was what was so important. And I think that that also is why uh, the legend of DeLorean kind of lives on is the kind of the cool factor of this car. Yeah. And of course, the stainless steel body panels uh, were part of uh, John's idea, not just of an ethical car an ethical car plant as well because the most polluting element of a car plant in those days was a paint shop as mm, we were into, makes so much the industry sense. was into oil-based paints not water-based paints and getting rid of the uh, the effluent after you know all the spillage uh, in a paint shop inevitably that misses the car body um was the biggest environmental problem of all so uh, n- not needing paint we got rid of that for the start and then you could start thinking about creating an environment within which people enjoyed working. You know, the whole color scheme of the of the building inside was part of that philosophy. The use of the uh, the Telus carriers, which are not original to us, were something that John had seen at a Volvo plant. There were manufacturers in Sweden these things that meant that you know the operators in the final assembly of the vehicle did not have to crawl under. Um, lifts or, you know, dip their heads or, you know, the car was, uh, it, it was free, around 360 degrees. You could get to it easily and the cars were moved on these, these TELUS carriers rather, moved on the um, electronic leads cut into the floor, controlled from a control room above. Um, yeah, I mean, it was all 
it was all state of the art. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's it. I just I just love that aspect of it. You know, I mean, I think that that was very forward thinking. Um, it, it, so I want to go back to to the to kind of the hodgepodge of parts that went into this, which was kind of bizarre to me. So here's like a list. Is that? Can I say that right? It's, it's, it's pretty fair, right? Well, here, hold on. Look, very no, carefully planned. <laughs> well, but you have so you have GMC making the steering, the spark plugs. You have Lotus doing, um, you know, the chassis. And Lotus, the, most did, of the Lotus car. didn't manufacture the chassis. That's another myth. Right. The, the Lotus engineered the engineered the chassis, but well, they they half engineered the chassis. The problem with Lotus was, if there was a problem, and, and don't get me wrong, they, they did a magnificent job, but they'd only ever designed and engineered vehicles for very, very low volume. They didn't really understand how to engineer a car for volume. And it was one of the key elements about the sourcing of the components was to ensure that whoever it was that was going to make the, the, the component, and in particular the chassis frame, had brought with them the expertise to assist the engineering and particularly to tool the uh, chassis frame and other components uh, to a level that it could be made economically for the volumes that we were envisaging. So a, GK, a subsidiary of GKN, the, the, English, the, the British company GKN was selected to uh, manufacture the um, the chassis frame, and they brought with them immense production engineering capability to uh, assist Lotus's design engineering capability to get a frame that was affordable in production. Right, because they were used to essentially making handmade cars. Yeah. I mean, like they could put something together, if it didn't work, they would manually fix it. It yeah. wasn't, you know, there wasn't mass produced, yeah. as you're talking about. Uh, that, that's a that's a key point in into this whole thing. Um, but let me get back to the hodgepodge <laughs> aspect. So you have visioneering, Intel design, Renault uh, is involved. Someone else is making the engine. Uh, you know, the every I think there there was um, well, one of the cool parts is the 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 torsion bar, which is what essentially makes the flux capacitor is what makes time travel possible. The the, the torsion bar is what makes the gull wing doors exactly. possible. Uh, and, and even that part had to be specifically manufactured. I remember you talking in the book is this great, this great um, vision that, that, you know, that you kind of paint where you walk into this very, uh, adv- it almost looked like, it sounded like an alien laboratory. There's like this big it was machine. It an aerospace in, uh, in Bethpage right. in, on Long Island. And it was like walking <laughs> into a, a scene in retrospect uh, of um, uh, close encounters of the, what was it, kind? Third kind? The third, third kind, yeah, yeah. Third kind, you know, it was full of guys that looked as if they were in space, spaceman's outfits. Right. There was this right. huge machine uh, to you literally had to climb up steps to get to that was to make this bar, which was what, about uh, two and a half feet long? Yeah. yeah. Um, astonishing. And, I, and, of course, I didn't. Now, I was asked to buy it off using the, the, the term the terminology that Grumman used, and I didn't quite know what I was buying off, but I tried to uh, look as if I knew what I was doing as I walked around the thing admiring it. It's about all I could do. <laughs> but, I mean, that piece is so key 
because otherwise the gullwing doors there, I think it was too heavy. Like they wouldn't work properly. Well, you couldn't get them. Yeah, the, the, no, there, there were ways to open the door, but they would have been crude and heavy and unsightly. Uh, and you know, if you look at the way the uh, Mercedes-Benz uh, SL gullwing uh, doors open, you know, they're they're crude contraptions. The same with uh, Aston Martin did a, uh, a one-off vehicle called the Bulldog. Uh, that again had got these scissor-like contraptions opening the doors, which just got them awful and didn't fit the image at all. But John, again, through his foresight, uh, and I, I suspect that Bill Collins had a hand in it as well, had spotted that there was a technique, a process that Grumman Aerospace used for something or other that could be adapted to make a torsion bar cryogenically twisted, See, I can still remember the terminology. Don't ask me to explain it to you. Cryogenically twisted by dipping it into some liquid or other. Uh, nitrogen. is liquid uh, nitrogen. That's it. Thank you. Yeah, and, you're uh, welcome. <laughs> I'm, I'm into this type of stuff. You've better than me. <laughs> and uh, lo and behold, it comes out. You fit it in the car and have the door open. It twists. And it assists yeah. immensely the open the door. And it's elegant, you know. John used the word elegance an awful lot. If you study him in when he's talking about the car in the Pennybacker film yeah. and so on, you know, um, yeah. he uses the word elegant. And John was into elegance, and Jusara knew about elegance. Bennington particularly knew how to implement elegance, and that's I think. Uh, and, and Colin Spooner, the, the, the guy who headed up the uh, engineering uh, at Lotus. Um, I'd say in the book that there are three people, really, that made the car that John conceived happen. Uh, Jujaro designed it. Uh, Colin Spooner led the engineering of it. And Bennington implemented it. And really going back to something we were talking about at the very beginning of this conversation, uh, John was the great ideas man, the, great guy, the guy who came up with the concept. He handed it over and by accident or design, these three guys made it happen. Well, I mean, it, it's, I mean, that, that kind of, kind of speaks to the whole thing, you know, I mean, it, it, as I was reading the book, I got the impression that he was kind of the overseer and had these ideas and it was kind of, you know, kind of came in, kind of dictated his notes and then walked away and everyone else implemented no, them. No, we ignored them. Or, or ignored <laughs> them completely. No, we ignored them. John, John only came <laughs> about once a month to Belfast and, Every time he came, he wanted to change something. So we just listened, and then he, he, he went away again, and we just carried on from where we were before. <laughs> if, we'd, if we'd have listened to John, the job would never have got done. Right. <laughs> that is not, that is very funny, not surprising. Um, so this is a totally random question, and I, I put this together from your book. Um, all, a lot of the women in the story have male nicknames. Why is that? Gertrude McWilliams was nicknamed Jimmy. Christine uh, Widener was Chris. George Bloomfield's secretary was Phil. Um, all women, w w what's going on there? Is that like a Northern Ireland thing? or what No, no. Well, Jimmy, I have no idea why uh, Gertrude Williams was known as Jimmy. I never asked her. She was too formidable a lady to, be, uh, to ask that question. Um, <laughs> she was extremely feminine, by the way. Um, yeah. And Bruce, yeah. dear Bruce McWilliams, her husband, one of the most 
intelligent, insightful uh, genius uh, of marketing that I've ever met. And I, I had the great pleasure of working with him again um, oh, about 10 years after the DeLorean program on a, on a short project. Um, uh, the other two now are just abbreviations. Um, if you you know spend much time in the UK, most girls that are called Phyllis are known as Phil. I had an auntie Phil. Yeah. Um, what was the other one you mentioned? Uh, well, it's Chris. Christine and Christine, Christopher. Sure. It, 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 they're both called Chris. Yeah, it's a common thing. It's nothing unusual about it. The the unusual one is Gertrude becoming Jimmy. Never. Understood. Well, I guess it because in the book you never mention her name's Phyllis, so that that does make sense. Yeah. Uh, you just know her as Phil, but I guess in the UK that's probably well known. Here in the states, it just struck out. It just stuck out. Yeah. To me. I should um, I should have referred to her as Phyllis with Phil in brackets, but. She was filled to everybody. Yeah, yeah she was filled. Yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, and one of the one of the things I learned from this, talking about the car itself, I had no idea that the interior was modeled out of clay. Oh yeah, they always were then. Like every every I, car was I, done I, the same way. Yeah, clay modelers. Well, um, most exteriors were modeled out of clay. Gijaro's original body would have been produced in clay. Hmm. Well, and I guess that makes there's this commercial. I think it's a, a Japanese car company because it's a Japanese designer, um, and it's it's escaping me now. But the commercial, to modern commercial, is him with one of those cool little. Uh, it's like a shaving board. I don't know what you would call it, but like you know, just to shave off like just micrometers yeah. of. Um, yeah. if that's even a thing. Yeah. So and it's out of clay. It's this you know it's this SUV that he's yeah. designing out of clay. I, I didn't know that was really a thing. Oh yeah, yeah. No, uh, clay, clay modelers were. Uh were very, very few and far between and commanded major premiums in salaries because of their skills. And, yeah, the, uh, the interior was done um, down at a, a, a design facility in the, the south of England um, by one clay modeler working with Charles Bennington leaning over his shoulder most of the time uh, with uh, Gijaro's, uh, I think you, you, you've seen in, in, in my book, um, there's a picture of uh, Gijaro's uh, original sketch of the interior, and it's amazing how faithful the play modeling was done to that uh, to that uh, rendering, that sketch. Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, it's incredible. I mean, it's just it's just a really cool thing um, to hear about. I mean, and so th this is you know kind of when all the cars starting to come together. Um, now, I got to ask you one question, unrelated. You talk about your love of clam chowder. Uh, and you have this really interesting story. I forget the context, right? Um, but you talk about the thing that stuck out to me was, um, you know, you're meeting with these with these high level executives, and and you're not exactly a hundred percent sure what's going on. Um, and and at the end, someone whispers in your ear, "Mind if I have a cigar?" And for some reason, you immediately know that that means that you are paying for this extravagant meal. <laughs> Um, is that like a thing? No, I've never heard that. No, before. it was just the way it worked. It was, um, it was in fact a meeting I had with the German manufacturing director, the German managing director of a company called August Leppler, who were the company that stamped the stainless steel body panels um, in uh, the south of Ireland, in a place called Carlo, in in the Republic of Ireland. And I'd driven down to Dublin for a meeting with him over lunch. And 
On the way down, I was thinking to myself, I can't remember who invited who for this meeting. Um, and on that basis, I don't quite know who's going to pick up the tab. So um, we had our meal and we got to coffee. And that's when the German guy, in all innocence, leaned across to me, tapped me on the arm and said, Barry, would you mind if I had a cigar? Now, I, from that moment on, I realized that he thought I was paying for the tab. So I picked up the tab. <laughs> it wasn't, a, it wasn't a deliberate thing on his part. I think he always, oh, I I think he always thought that I'd invited him. It was just that on the way to Dublin, I was totally unclear yeah. as to who was paying. But from that moment on, when he asked me if he might have a cigar, I immediately knew I was picking up the table. What was that? Did you buy cigars at the table? Is that where that came from? Yes. In those days, you're allowed to smoke. Or so okay. I, I stand the things. Okay. I didn't have one, but he did. That's okay. Oh, that makes sense. Um, and then, so we're coming up on the end here, and I want to I want to end this part with this really interesting story because to me, this story was kind of telling of the problems that were starting to arise, kind of outside of your periphery. You know, things you could control. Obviously, what was happening in the factory, but as you're trying to get this car to market, this story was really interesting to me. Um, it, I think it was you were you were on a plane with someone else, and and you. I'm, I'm probably getting the details of the story. No, I know, so I know what you're referring to. It was, when I went Did out to, um, uh, uh, it was in November of '81, uh, and I was asked by Don Lander, who was our second managing director. Uh, Don Lander was the guy that really picked up from where Bennington left off and uh, effectively saw the car into production and uh, sale market. Uh, John Lander asked me to um, go across to California to check out with Dick Brown on, on how sales were looking. And they were looking extraordinarily good at that time and just shows how quickly things could change. But it was, um, I changed planes somewhere uh, on my way to LA. I think I've been to Detroit first. And um, I picked up Oh, well, no, it was, it was on, no, it was the other way around, it was the other way around. I'd been to California, and I was on my way to New York to meet up with John, and we were then going to go to, up to Long Island by helicopter to uh, check out the uh, turbocharged prototypes that have been produced by Legend Industries, okay? And at LAX, on my before my flight to New York, I picked up a copy of the Los Angeles Times. And I was reading that paper on the plane when I read the first ever negative press that I'd seen in the USA. I'd, I'd seen plenty of negative press in, in the UK, but the press in the US had always been positive. Here was a story about a short one, but it was about John's dealings with this guy called Roy Nesseth, who uh, I'd not really heard of at that stage. Um, and I therefore flew into New York. Um, I met up with John. And the first thing I did when we got into the helicopter 
to fly up to Long Island was I gave him the newspaper and said, opened up the page, and I said, John, I think you ought to read that. And uh, John spent the whole of that short, relatively short trip with his uh, head in his, with his fingers each side of his, you know, his hands each side of his head over the newspaper just studying that article. Uh, and that was really, I think, in, as I see it, that was progressively the beginning of the end. Well, I will tell you that that is not at all the story I was referring oh. to, but that is a great story. Oh, sorry. <laughs> you tell me the one you had in mind then. I'm going to take it a step back, and I'm going to say um, what I noticed, what I thought was probably the first time, and this is yeah, coming from an outsider, you know, with a couple weeks' worth of research, you know. Yeah. <laughs> But you you were on a plane, um, or you and someone else were on a plane, and you overheard someone talking about how um, I think it was maybe that same news article, or it had gotten bad, you know, bad press, and they were how they were going to go bankrupt or something. And they said, "How in the world can this company go bankrupt? It's the hottest car on the market. Uh, yeah. We I've been wanting one for for years." And and I think I think Dick was uh, was involved in this. Yeah, it was Dick Brown. It wasn't me. That was a story. Okay, that so Dick, Dick Brown, Brown right. recounted, uh, recounted to me. I was not with Dick. Right. That was Dick Brown okay. on an internal flight in the USA, and he overheard this conversation uh, exactly as you've recounted it. Uh, it okay. was at the when we was when it was first being reported. It was after the time that I was referring to. It was when right. I think we might even have okay, gone into receivership at that time. But there was an American okay. reading this newspaper, incredulous about the fact that we were in financial difficulty when, in his mind, the car was the hottest property in the American market. Right, right, and he couldn't get one. And and, and I guess what, what I thought was interesting about that is part of the problem were the dealers and how they were selling the car or not selling the car, which was something that was very difficult to control. You know, difficult to control. How do you keep an eye on all these dealers? And you had to like go and have undercover people go in there and figure out how they were selling the car. Uh, you know, I guess I didn't understand that that took place after your yeah. story because I think your story is actually is really the quintessential moment. I think I'm really glad that you told that okay, story. Thank you. <laughs> so, thank you. Thank yeah. you yeah no because i think that that i think you're actually 100 percent right that's probably the beginning of the end um but but not being able to know what these dealers are telling people is also very important um but this is the beginning of the end um not only of the story but of of, of this particular interview but you're going to stick around for for a couple minutes we're going to do a bonus episode on the downhill slide of, of delorean um, but how can people find your book where, where, where you can, you know, you, you, the great recounting of the story from, from your telling, um, very factual. There's not a lot of criticism. There's not a lot of, um, you know, your opinion is not in the book, which is, which I thought was kind of strange, but also very refreshing. It's really just your objectively, your eyes seeing what's going on. Yeah. Um, I, I, I set out deliberately not to, uh, cast judgment of anything relating to the DeLorean stories. I felt that there were too many books out there that had dissected the project and the man in particular. And I, I didn't want to add to that. I wanted to be, I wanted to record really the, the story of where I came in and where I went out um, in an anecdotal form, which I hope from time to time might be amusing uh, but above, above all, set the record straight from there were far too many of the books have got hidden agendas that were written 
You know, they were written around an agenda. They weren't written to record the history. They were written because people had a, an axe to grind. And I think that was, I think that was very, very sad. And, and I, I set out to, uh, to change that. Well, and I think, you know, there's also a lot of sensational parts of the story that people kind of attach to, which we'll, we'll get to. Um, and it's easy to kind of, you know, especially in American, well, in Western European culture, this great man idea, it's easy to, to look at them, pin everything on them and their rise and fall um, and, and kind of miss everybody else. Uh, but it's John Z, the DeLorean and me. Um, I'll have links to, to finding this book. I think it's an incredible read. Barry, I, I want to thank you so much for being on the show today. No problem. Thank you. And I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glencoe production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. Go to fascinatingnouns.com to learn more about this show and listen to the entire catalog. You can also follow the show on social media. If you scroll to the bottom, you'll find links to the show's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and YouTube links all at the bottom of the Fascinating Nouns webpage. Up at the top, you can learn, learn more about the guests, full episode catalog, and if you like this show, you're going to love all the things that I do, including my latest podcast, Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies, where I take a team of experts analyze a piece of pop culture fictional technology like the everlasting gobstopper the t-1000 harry potter's brooms and show you how to make them in real life f triple that's f triple one more time f triple go there check out the show and if you like that show you're gonna like everything that i do go to danieljglenn.com to learn more thank you for listening end of transmission